and welcome to another episode of Mind on the Game, a sports event podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with men and women from across the sporting landscape. We discuss their sporting journeys, their mental health and how they keep their mind on the game. I'm so excited for this episode of Mind on the Game Venters because I'm talking to one of my best mates and genuinely one of the funniest guys I know. So I hope he lives up to that expectation on this pod. His name is Aaron Bowes and he plays in the men's first team for Ashford Rugby Club in Kent. Me and Aaron met at university where we both studied politics, whilst Aaron also took history as well. Aaron was part of the rugby team at Sussex Uni and saw how the rugby team changed from a pretty stereotypical uni lad culture to one of inclusivity and the kind of environment that makes rugby great. Uni rugby culture, toxic masculinity, growth, self-confidence and the mental health aspect of managing your finances are all on the menu. This is how our conversation went. Aaron, welcome to Mind on the Game, mate. I'm so excited to have you on, as I reckon I'll probably laugh more on this podcast than any other episode so far. First off, how are you, boy? Not bad, thanks. Yeah, no pressure now, but make you laugh. Yeah, pretty good. Life's pretty boring at the moment, and I think everyone's just gearing up for Christmas. So, yeah, just stay at home. I'm in tier three as well, like you. So there's really not much to do except go shopping or go to the gym or go for a walk, which is not very nice. Or do podcasts. Yes, or do podcasts. So yes, thanks for having me. My first ever one. So it might be my first, might be my last, depending how well I go. Right, mate. We've got a lot to crack on with this episode and perhaps a little bit more than my usual pod. So shall we just get started? Let's kick off the pod by talking about your journey with rugby, mate. So first off, why don't you tell the listeners how you got into it, who got you into it, and maybe how your love for the game started. I moved to Ashford, where I currently live, when I was nine years old. I'd never played rugby before that, never really knew much about it. But where we moved in Ashford, it was about a five-minute walk to the local rugby club. So my dad suggested that I give it a go. I was quite sporty. I played a bit of football and a bit of golf as well, and I was up for it. So I went down there around nine, ten years old. So my dad really got me into it. But as I was there, I started making lots of friends. It was a really good way to move into a community because instantly I had loads of friends. As I got older, I just loved the game more and more. So I sort of started playing golf and rugby regularly. So that would be every week, maybe more than once a week. And yeah, I just decided to focus on rugby because it was such a more social sport and lots more physical benefits in my mind. And for you, mate, what was rugby like in regards to a positive distraction or forming your identity, maybe confidence boosting? What can you tell me here about what the mental health impact of rugby was for you? Oh, it's crucial for my my development. In primary school, I was such a shy, reserved, quiet boy. But honestly, it was rugby as well as something we'll talk about later, my self-confidence with my body image. They sort of went hand in hand and they really developed me as a person socially and responsibly as well because the the game of rugby, it, it teaches you a lot of life skills about respect and yeah, it's just such a social sport. So it was massive for my development. For the listeners who don't know, just tell them a bit about Ashford as a community rugby club, maybe some of your favourite memories at the club, favourite players, favourite matches. You know, Tell me a bit here. Ashford, our slogan is Kent's friendliest club, which I don't know how true that is. I would say it's quite friendly for me. Obviously, other clubs may disagree. As I was growing up, some of the, the key figures in my rugby development were coaches. So there was one that... I remember distinctly Joe Connolly, Scottish, quite sweary, but heart of gold. He sadly passed away while I was still in secondary school. And then some of the other big figures were the ones I grew up with through rugby and also went to school with. So there was a few like uh, my mate Danny, Tom. There's some that still play a lot, don't anymore. But yeah, Ashford as a club is quite well known in Kent. We're one of the only few places who actually owns our pitches, a lot rent them. So we host quite a few tournaments. And we have lots of age groups, all the way from minis, all the way up to three men's teams and a a ladies team. So we're quite a big club in terms of the people that actually go there. But in terms of where we are in the league standing, that's probably higher, like Canterbury or Dartfordians, those, and as you go further into London. 
You are in the first team squad at Ashford, but let's go back a little bit if we can. Can you tell me about the first game in a professional or semi-professional capacity you played at Ashford? What was it like and the sort of nerves or anxieties before it? Well, yeah, I like that you called me professional there. It's, uh, yeah, my first game, I was under 10s. I'm pretty sure it was just an intra-club match. We had enough players to make two teams. At that age, I think there was only 10 to 12 players on a pitch. And I was I remember being on the wing. I was awful. I had no clue what I was doing. Everyone around me was quite supportive. They obviously know I was new. And when you're new, you're sort of either chucked on the wing or chucked in the centre of the scrum at hooker when you're at that age. So luckily I got put on the wing. Otherwise it might have been, my rugby career might have been different. And I remember my first adult game was a really good memory of mine. It was a joint first team and second team away game to a team called Crowborough. Because it was a joint away game, we'd hired a coach. And I was obviously playing for the second team. And I got man the match on that game. I didn't score or anything. I got a try disallowed. But we won the game. And there was a big party afterwards at the rugby club, which was great. And then I remember my first first team game. There's a, a great story with this. So I was due to play for the third team. Twos didn't have a game. And the third team is a social team, OK? So I went the night before, Friday night. I was in town and I met up with the third team captain. And he's quite a drinker. And I was about to leave, like, half 11. He physically grabbed me, took my coat off me and sat me back down. And as a student, he was like, yeah, don't worry about buying any drinks. And I got smashed, honestly. The next day, I woke up and I was in bed. Dad shouted up the stairs. He was like, you've got 10 minutes. You're playing for the threes. So I rolled over. And then about a minute later, he went, yep, just had a phone call. You're now playing for the ones. You've got five minutes to get up. And I was like, oh, God. And we were playing against the league leaders away. I think it was Seven Oaks. So hungover, and they'd made me a bacon sandwich to eat on the way up there. Didn't even touch it, I was feeling that bad. And I come on, and we were about 40 points down. And the first thing I did was make a tackle and win a turnover, and my hangover was gone completely. I had an all right game, actually. Completely cocked up one of the backs moves, but we scored from it. I acted like it was like NFL, I was blocking someone else. Yeah, that was my first first team game. Not the normal way you go into the first team, but yeah, it's been going from there. For any sportsman, there's also a bad moment or a bad game that you have. If you could just tell me about one particular story you can share, but most importantly, what you learned from it. The big ones for rugby players, you have bad games every now and then. You always think afterwards about, oh, what could I have done? Could I have made this pass? You know, that sort of thing. Could I have backed myself and maybe got a try? But one of the worst games I've had was when I was in my under-18s and it was right at the start of the season. I got tackled off the ball and I had done my cruciate ligament and that was me out for a year, year or so. And honestly, looking back, that was the fittest I ever was and I was captain of my team. And yeah, just from it, you've got to understand with injuries, especially for rugby players, there's huge, not just physical negative outcomes with injury, there's lots of mental health outcomes. Um, as well and just to be patient because I tried to push it after six months and that probably set me back another six months so with me if you have a bad game or an injury honestly just take it slow think long term I know short term you want to get back out there with the boys but think long term and and just to get yourself fit and ready to play again. Do you think the mental health side of injuries and long-term injuries not just for professional athletes but for semi-pro athletes and players is talked about enough? I'd certainly say about professionals because that's often in the media. Well, with people who are in the game, they notice a lot. But recently, I would say injuries, especially head injuries around concussion, those sorts of things, or or serious injuries around paralysis, I talked about enough, but not at the semi-professional or amateur level. Partly because, well, semi-pros, it must be so awful because often that could be your main source of income and you get less support than you would at a professional or say national setup. So I think it could be talked about more, but currently as I said, with concussion, that's in, that's in the headlines recently because some ex-professional players are now suing World Rugby, English RFU and Welsh Rugby Union because they feel that they weren't protected enough. So I think that's in the headline concussions, but other injuries, they're probably not as much. I ask all my mind on the game guests this question Aaron so what mental tools or techniques do you use 
to keep your mind on the game? Honestly, it's a, there's a, I talk a lot to my friends and my coaches. I'm always pushing to see where I can improve and not be complacent, which I think really helps me focus on my game and keep me moving forward as a rugby player. But yeah, if I was just talking generally about mental health or keeping focused, yeah, talking to your friends or family, that can be one of the best things. Even just venting, pardon the pun. Yeah, venting to your friends can be have such a positive impact. Even if they don't say anything or give advice, just getting that off your chest can be quite cathartic. That would be my top tip. The darker side of any discussion I have with guests on Mind of the Game is about exclusionary culture in sport. And one example of that is the dreaded TFC or the thanks for coming. Now for rugby, that probably involves going all the way to a game, being on the subs bench and not getting off the subs bench. For the listeners who don't know what it's like to get a TFC, have you ever had one? And what impact can it have on your mental health as a young player and even as an adult too? Yeah, so that's happened to me only twice in my probably, what's that, 16 year playing. At junior level, they always try and get kids on and I think there's specific rules about it now but my first time was actually at university I'd been playing for the second team I think I was in my second or third I must have been third year and I'd been training really well and there had been a few injuries at the first time before I'd even found out that I was playing the captain at the time Seb he texted me and said oh well done mate welcome to the first team and it was a home game and I was a sub and I was the only unused sub and yeah I didn't even shower I was like yeah instantly got changed, just went home. At that time, I wasn't that bothered. I'm a real team player and we won. So I wasn't too disheartened. And then we joked about it afterwards, after every game or every Wednesday at university, you'd have a social. So I got a specific mention and a specific thanks for coming. But then it was the week after I got dropped out of the first team. And I was like, well, what can I do? There's nothing I can do for that. I didn't even get a chance to play. I'd still been training. It wasn't anything like that. So I just got dropped. And I was like, oh, okay. Bit disheartened. But I just really then just focused on playing for the second team. The second time. So that one probably had more of a negative effect. But the last one was actually last season. So that one was okay because it was a home game as well. This one was an away game. This one had a coach trip. It was like an hour and a half drive. And I was on the bench. And I didn't get on. Once again, the only one not to get on. That one wasn't too bad because honestly, that one I actually said to the coach, there was about five minutes left and everyone was playing really well. And all the backs, I wouldn't have, if I was a coach, I wouldn't have taken anyone off. So I actually said to the coach, yeah, there's only a few minutes left. They're all playing well. There's no point disrupting the flow. It's quite a tight game. Don't worry about putting me on, just giving him that reassurance. And that's where I've probably grown as a player. I'm there for the team. Obviously, personally, it's going, I'm not, didn't get on. And it would have been my first first team of the, the season because I'd been injured as well at the start of the season. So I took that one a bit more positively because partly it was my choice. But yeah, the university ones. I'd even told everyone, I've got my girlfriend at the time to come down. So I was like, oh, okay, yep, not doing that again. <laughs> and I was like, you're a curse. You're a curse. Don't come to any games again. I want to dive a little bit deeper into your university rugby experience, Aaron, because it's fair to say for those who don't know, that Sussex rugby went, or Sussex men's rugby, I should say, went on a bit of a roller coaster journey, didn't it? Set the scene for me first. How did you join and walk me through your experience of the club in your freshers' year? Yeah, okay. So, freshers, I just remember obviously I was a bit nervous joining university as everyone is, a bit anxious, meeting new people. Went to the freshers' fair where all the societies are there and they're promoting and you sign up. And the guys were really friendly. They sort of then they explained that actually at that time there was two teams that were trying to create a third, which would be more social, so it was appealing to everyone. And I joined up. Training was great, probably one of the highest standards of training I'd had at that time. And the first team, especially, were flying. They'd smash in the league. By the end of the season, they got promoted, and it was the highest the men's had ever been. The socials were great. They sort of for freshers, they'd made it. Yeah, you'd participate. But you didn't have to if you didn't want to. So you could just sort of sit there and just take in the atmosphere and go out with them. And then it all sort of went downhill when we went on tour. Not downhill. Well, you could say downhill because eventually we got banned as a rugby club. Not for anything too nefarious or, you know, some of the stuff that you hear like sexual assault or anything like that. There was nothing like that. It was just lots of drinking and on the coach, because it was to Spain, we were on there for over a day, the coach. The coach got a bit messed up. 
And the tour company absolutely hammered us and gave us a massive fine, which we all had to pay towards. But we just got banned as a club. And it was just one of those things. I think it was the last straw, the straw that broke the camel's back, really. It wasn't anything too bad. No one got uh, kicked out of university or anything, or like arrested or anything like that it was one of those things and as we moved into second year so we weren't technically allowed to play in the the university league so we joined a different league a merit league outside of university sport and created our team the Sussex Exiles because obviously we've been exiled and we did lots of charity work and there was a real shift there because there was a new head of the team new sort of committee like social second club captain who were really obviously pushing for us to get back in and be a team to represent the university. But we also did a lot of charity work, lots of events, which I think have really stuck with the club. And I'll just say that generally about rugby. I know locally, outside of university, I think there has been a generational shift from the more laddie, seedy behaviour that, that you still find with older players than the newer generation coming through. And just on that, obviously dressing room culture is a big topic in rugby and loads of other sports. Was it ever a problem, do you think? Or was there a lot of myths or kind of fake news? You know, I hate using that phrase, but was there a lot of bit of fake news going around about the behaviour of the rugby team or was some of it justified? I don't know. Well, for the university one, there was honestly so many rumours. There was one that was like, oh yeah, we smashed through the bottom of the bus to Great Escape, tunnelled into the luggage compartment to get alcohol out. That was pure fabrication. And in terms of the changing room, I personally have never experienced anything negative with changing rooms but I'm not I'm not and I'm not going to say that people haven't experienced negative sort of behavior from there but me personally I've never experienced it also I'd like to believe that I, I well I've never seen it but if I did see something that I didn't agree with that I would challenge it I know it's easy to say that but I genuinely believe that I would the steps you made clearly worked, as you mentioned, because you were reinstated as a club and you even beat Brighton Uni, I think, in the varsity game for the first time in three years or something like that. How important was that for you in enjoying your rugby in your final year? And how do you look back on how the environment was changed, basically, to become more inclusive? Yeah, it was massive. Yeah, as you say, we got back in. So it was actually, we got banned for two years. So basically, the university was trying to say anyone who was on that tour, you cannot play rugby for the university again. But we appealed after the first year and got let back in, which was massive for us. We sort of had to start from the bottom again. We started at a specific league, which was much lower. Like We got the worst training times. Everyone was much happier. It was much more inclusive. The socials were a bit more relaxed. Yeah, and it was just generally a nice environment because in the second year we had to train on a field that wasn't related to the university sport, but now we're allowed back in the changing rooms, the gym, the pitches again, obviously. So, and obviously, crucially, play varsity, as you say, and we managed to win that year. I'm not sure whether it was because we'd, it was a big fuck you to the university or because we'd had specifically better players or Brighton had got worse over the, just the two years. But yeah, that was massive for us. When it comes to university rugby culture, as opposed to the grassroots community-based rugby culture, do you think there is a wider problem with uni rugby teams in that uni lad stereotype, which toxic masculinity can become a part of? Or is it changing a lot for the better now? I think my experience is, yeah, university is the hyper-masculinity side of rugby. I think it is changing but still is at that higher level than you see at the community game. Partly because it's so many young guys, they're easily influenced by maybe the second and third years. And also, university is its own sort of ecosystem. There's different rules, different social norms, which I think can promote that toxic masculinity or hegemonic masculinity, however you want to phrase it, which has negative outcomes for not only students and rugby players, but also like the image of university students. And it's quite easy to get into that mentality I wouldn't call it a mob mentality but that sort of thing where you're just sucked into the oh this is what we do as a rugby club and when you think about it on your own you're like well I'd never do that on my own but yeah I think it is changing partly because I think generational shifts the younger people nowadays are drinking less doing less drugs having less sex so I think generally might be becoming more moderate but if you compare the university game it is much more hyper masculinity and partly because I think it's just the age you've got to bunch of 18 to 22 possibly even like 25 depending on the course they're doing and that is just 
so hyper-masculine, you've got so much testosterone, you've got your so easily influenced. And as a fresher, you just want to get on. And if that's what they, they do and they've done it, then there's no reason why I can't do those sorts of drinking or, or anything else. At Sussex RFC, everyone had a nickname, as is commonplace in most male and women's team sports, especially rugby. You had quite a few. What are the ones you can repeat on this podcast and be careful here because I don't want to get myself in trouble? Yeah, I had a lot. Most people just have one and it sticks with them. There was, it was probably one of the most popular people of the year would get, it was for some reason, you get a rodent name. So obviously we had Ratty in our year, but there was like gerbil and stuff like that. I had various that went from first year all the way to third year. So some of it's just so stupid. It like makes no sense. They're not rude or anything. They just make no sense. So the first one was I was called Groundskeeper Willie because on tour my hair got dyed bright red and because I'm blonde it went super red. So I just got the nickname Groundskeeper Willie. And then it moved to stuff like Aslan. I have no idea why. I think it was because I just had lots of hair at that time and it was golden blonde. And then I, I finished with probably the most understandable one, Bowser. I put on a bit of weight at university and my name's Bo. So it, it made sense. Honestly, I had about six, seven different types of nicknames. But yeah, everyone had a nickname. But yeah, for some reason, I just had a lot more. How did the Burger King one originate? <laughs> I specifically didn't mention that one. <laughs> that one was because I just ate a lot of Burger King. I was the king. I just, it would be after every night out, well, every Wednesday, at least probably, I'd go to Burger King, get a Baker Double Cheese XL meal, got it down. And that was one of the least original names, <laughs> the Burger King. But yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Just tell me what were some of your favourite stories or matches from Sussex, maybe some of the players you most enjoy playing with or going on a night out with. Who can we chuck under the bus as well? <laughs> yeah, so obviously one of my favourite games was my first game for the, the club. I played for the twos. I remember it was against Westminster University. It was an away game. I was a sub. Cut when we were losing, I think we lost like 17-5 or 17-7, so three tries to one. But I come on as a sub. And the first thing I did was get the ball, beat two players and score our only try. And, but I didn't look at, I remember, I didn't feel fast. I'd already put on a bit of weight at this point as well. And the, the other guys who were on the, the sub bench, they went, you looked so slow, but nobody was catching up. <laughs> so that was, that was a distinctly first one of the first game I remember. Another one was when I scored, I scored two tries. I think that was in the second team as well. That was a sort of away game, but it was a local away game. And obviously getting a couple meat pies was always good. And I remember my last game, I played out of position. I was playing for the twos away to, I think it was Surrey. And that, their facilities there are just mad. They were crazy. I think it's where Harlequins train. And we saw a few of the players. And I was playing flanker, which as you know, playing backs, utility probably at university, winger, centre, wherever. That was what was probably one of my best games. I loved it. In terms of people who I loved playing with, there was obviously there was Sheepy, who's a great guy. Not the biggest social guy, but when he did, he went out big. And then obviously some of the main names are the guys who I was in freshers with and then moved on with. Can't not mention Marty. What a legend. He's a top guy. I still talk to him now, actually. And yeah, we had a bit of a bromance going on. Sam Brown you know, ratty, sneaky, you know, all these all these nicknames, which don't mean anything to anyone listening. But yeah, there's some great guys that were in that cohort of, I suppose you could say, like 2012, when I went to university. And just finally, Aaron, throughout these experiences, how do you think Sussex, RFC, Ashford and the sport of rugby has shaped you as a person? And what has it taught you about yourself? Well, yeah, as I, I mentioned before, it's massively shaped my confidence. I couldn't imagine my life without rugby, as sort of cliched as that sounds. The amount of friends, the things I've learned, the experiences I've had as an individual and also as part of a collective, there's too many to count. Me personally, as socially, I've grown exponentially in terms of confidence and just meeting new people and becoming an outgoing person. Because as I said before, yeah, before I'd sort of moved to Ashford and started playing rugby, I was such a shy, quiet, smi a smiley boy. But yeah, so I had friends, but not as many as I say I would now. So yeah, it's massively defined me as a person. <laughs>
We've discussed Aaron, the rugby player. Let's talk about your own journey in a bit more detail, mate. So first off, I ask all my guests this question. Walk me through your early life in Kent, your teenage years, and whether looking back, do you think you had any early mental health experiences? Who's the Aaron we meet here? So obviously, I think my life really developed as I moved to Kent. I went to an all-boys grammar school growing up, and I, I mentioned this before we got on the pod, but I was having some self-esteem issues around my body image, particularly around my ears. They're not particularly large or anything like that, but they just stuck out. Yeah, and so I'd get all sorts of nicknames and, and those sorts of things. It wasn't, I wouldn't say it was necessarily bullying in terms of that it's a constant, persistent, you know, those things over time where they're just going at you. But obviously it rocked my self-esteem. I didn't feel, even at a young age, I cared about your body image and especially what might set you apart, especially if young kids point that out then it does affect your mental health and self-esteem. And I remember I just sort of had enough. And my parents, they found me. I was, I was crying on my bed. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not happy with how I look. And they were instantly supportive straight away. Like, well, if you're not happy, we can look in sorting it out. Because I wasn't really a, a crying child or, you know, I was quite a reserved young boy. As I've mentioned before, I was quite shy and obviously grew as I went into adolescence so straight away went to the GP they were like yeah we can there's a free procedure on the NHS managed to get booked in pretty quickly actually because they went oh well a private hospital nearby has got NHS beds so you can go there and it'll be a lot quicker and I remember the doctor so I got a pre-checkup at the private hospital <laughs> this didn't help my self-image the doctor he went oh yes classic case of bat ears I was like what as an 11, 12-year-old, that's not the most tactful thing to say to me when I'm clearly having issues about my ears. Yeah, and I had my ears pinned back, which is a simple procedure. I had to stay in overnight, though, under anaesthetic. And honestly, it made a world of difference to my confidence. Yeah, obviously, people didn't mention my ears again because the procedure had worked. And even to this day, I don't think about it. I have to remind myself, if I'm thinking about it, that I've actually had this procedure done. And honestly, from there, combined with rugby and my mates and you know my family supporting me I grew as a person in terms of confidence and my mental health really obviously improved but yeah helped me become the the man I am today. Let's fast forward to university now we've spoken about rugby but just on the university angle itself do you think you were ready for it and did you enjoy it as much as possible despite the challenges we all faced? Yeah, I think at that point in time, I was such a confident person. And obviously, I had the general anxiety that everyone has. Oh, will I get on with my housemates? Those sorts of things. How will I do studying? Some obviously relish being away from their family. I'm from Kent, but being at Sussex, it's not that far away, so I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I loved freshers, meeting new people. Most of the people I've met, I still talk to today, especially the ones I lived with. And I'd go visit, they've, they've moved, obviously, away from the southeast of England, some have moved abroad, so we planned to, for me to go out and see them. But yeah, it was really an enjoyable experience for me. I understand that a lot of people don't have that experience, so I was quite fortunate, partly because I'd say rugby, my university flatmates were really great. I also had a girlfriend at the time, which obviously helps your mental health generally, I would say, if the relationship's going well, obviously. When you graduated, mate, can you just tell me the story about when your name was read out? Because that's always one that cracks me up whenever I think back into that university graduation ceremony. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Once again. Yeah, I remember afterwards you coming straight up and going, oh, here we go. So for some reason, on the day we were graduating, the history and politics course that I did was the first one to go up, really. And being Aaron Bowes, I was one of the first people to go up. Which is great, because at this time, everyone's giving it, they're all clapping. But get up to the stage, I'm literally, the, the, the woman's there, she's obviously reading out people's names, and I step on, and she goes, oh, and Aaron bows. And I'm already on the stage at this point, so I can't turn round, and I just go with it. Obviously, I've just spent three years of my life, and accrued quite a bit of student debt. Obviously, we, we were the first year to start paying nine grand a year. And I was like, so I've got my degree. And she said my bloody name wrong. <laughs> and instantly, I was just, well, I was just like, I've just got to go with this. My dad was cheering. I could hear him way up in the stands. So I was like, well, I've just got to go with this. And obviously uh, shook the guy's hand. Got off quickly. And as soon as we all met up afterwards, I remember you going, oh, all right, Aaron. <laughs> all right, Aaron, now. I was like, yeah, kids, man. 
In adult life, mate, you're definitely one of the few people I know who bought a flat at quite a young age. But another thing that did come up when we spoke off air was money and managing your money as an adult and the mental health impacts of that. Could you just tell the listeners a bit more about what you meant by that? Yeah, well, honestly, in terms of secondary school, like primary school, as you develop, you don't really, there's no mention of money, money management, debt management, that sort of thing. You learn about quadratic equations and Pythagoras theorem, but you never, I know lots of people think this, you don't learn about mortgages or, you know, those things that actually taxes and all the bills that will face you. You obviously learn a bit more as you go through university because you're chucked into that. When you move out of pressures, halls, you have to get a place of yourself. So there's obviously rent and then there's utility bills, those sorts of things. But obviously, as you develop, you're splitting bills there, first of all, and you have less bills. But when you get your own place or move in with someone, there's a lot more to manage. Everything seems to cost more and you can quite easily get overwhelmed in terms of not having enough money or getting into too much debt. I've got a bit of debt, which thankfully I'm managing and I'm paying off more than I need to, but it can be very easy once you're out of that university life and you're no longer as thrifty as you were or you have different priorities. And it can quite easily with these credit cards that are available nowadays or the loans that banks are offering, maybe not now during COVID, but it's quite easy to get into debt, which can have a massive impact on mental health. Because some months I've gone, well, I really don't have any money. How can I do any of this? Or I'm really going to have to count my pennies. It affects me, so I know it it obviously affects others. One thing I have to get you to talk about is your life mantra, Now We Build. It is synonymous amongst my mates now, such is the magic of it, and how well you deliver it at opportune comedic moments. For the listeners who don't know, tell them about this little ad-lib of yours, when you use it, and how you came up with it. I honestly don't know whether I came up with it or heard it somewhere, but you know, I just kept repeating it, and it stuck. It can be used for everything. It first started with rugby. Often when we'd get a big play or score a try, I'd start like shouting, now we build, now we build from here. And it sort of stuck on. And then obviously when you and I went on holiday to Croatia, to Dimensions Festival, it worked there as well. Like when there was a, there was a song coming on and it would be building up and then it would come with a drop. I'd just go, now we build, now we build. It, it can just be used for any walk of life and it really just means we push on from here this is just the beginning everything's going to get better and now we build it actually got put onto our bloody the nwb got put onto the ashford second team kit like on the shoulder or something like that which is ridiculous and obviously i was like i didn't push that (laughs) but you know it's just one of those things that sticks just on that dimensions festival there was a (laughs) Great example of when you used it on the final night of the festival. Can you remember that memory and share it without incriminating both of us? Was this when we'd come up with a sort of non-verbal gesture where often you couldn't hear anything? But yeah, it was the last night and I'd gone to a different stage as well, didn't I? And you'd found me with everyone else, like Becca and uh, Tom. And I was just obviously really quite drunk. It was the last night, so I'd gone all in. And you did found me and you were like, what's happening, Aaron? What's happening? And I was like, now we build. <laughs> just there, just going, now we build. And it's like, they were like, yeah, we've got to go to bed now. It's like three, four in the morning. I was like, no, now we build. Classic. I did remember we losing you for about three hours. And then we found you at like five in the morning, just walking about going, I've lost everyone. I was looking for you everywhere. Deconstruct. I'm built. I'm built. <laughs> yeah, I was like, we've too much, too much building. I need, I need to deconstruct. Obviously, yeah. Oh, smash. Thanks again for bringing that up. <laughs> and just finally, Aaron, given all these experiences, who's the Aaron we meet here and speaking to me right now, as opposed to the 12-year-old Aaron? I'm honestly a lot more mature. I take things a lot more serious. I might not look like it, but I do take things seriously. I'm quite a laid-back person, but when it comes to it, I can be quite serious. And at this time, I'm just sort of enjoying life much more, experiences much more. Because at 12, you're just in school and you think, oh, this is the worst time of my life, just going to school every day. I'd rather not be doing this. When you look back, you're like, those are some great times, obviously some worst times. But now, yeah, I'm pushing forward. I'm currently doing a master's degree. So now we build, really, from here. (laughs) 
we've come to my favourite part of the pod, which was a fairly last minute edition, actually, which is a little chat about our friendship as Aaron and Fred. Do you want to talk about the first time we met, if you remember it? Because I'm sure it was some politics lecture in the Fulton building in first year and we were both probably hung over from some sort of O'Shaughnessy Wednesday session. Do you want to go with your first impressions of me and then I'll do the same? I don't know whether this was actually the first time we met, but I really remember when we were doing that. It was about research methods. And I'd obviously seen you about and we'd chatted a few times. But when we were doing our assignment for that module, which I think was called research methods or political science research methods or something like that. And we were up at the top block in like the computer room. And I remember you you were panicking, right? You were honestly so nervous. It was honestly, we were like chalk and cheese. I was like, I don't really care. And you were you were like, I need to get... 100%. My first impression of you, you were like, yeah, big smile, always up for a laugh, always ready to ready to go out. But you took your work seriously as well, which I which I like. That was the first time I really remember us because we were working together on like a similar project, weren't we? Yeah, exactly. And you've just given me some memories of that because I remember being in that computer room and just reading the computer screen and just not getting any of it and having to get some person, like some one of the girls in the course to like explain like the data method or something like that. I was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I need to understand it. I don't get it. And I think I got like 62 or something in that. And I was pretty happy because I had no idea about any of that stuff. Yeah, as I said, you were just so, yeah, you were like, honestly, you were like, fine, fine, fine. And then you're like, headless chicken. You're like, oh God, oh God, well, I need help. This doesn't make sense, which I thought was hilarious as well. I tried to help, but I thought it was quite funny. You <laughs> losing your mind. Yeah, that was when I was subconsciously having anxiety attacks without realising I was having anxiety attacks for sure. <laughs> I think for me, mate, again, I don't remember the first time I met you as well, but I just remember us like chatting in various lectures and when it comes to like British political history, I think we, which we shared doing a module with the thing that has made us like stay friends for so many years is like we're such a low maintenance friendship. We don't have to like constantly be in contact with each other. I'll just text you. It'll be fine. You come round or whatever. Or like we'll go out to see a film or something. I think back then so many friendships revolved around drinking and probably a lot of our friendship did, but it didn't have to. And we were just pretty chill with one another, weren't we? Yeah, no, exactly. You hit the nail on the head there. A lot of friendships were built around the social drinking aspect. I couldn't have put that better myself. We were very low maintenance. It could have been like a month more or so, and we'd start texting or something. And it'd be like we'd never, there'd never be any time apart, if that makes sense. I guess the majority of our time, as you said, was spent drinking in first and to a certain extent second year, seeing each other absolutely off our nuts in the middle of the Oceana Cheese Room dance floor. What were your favourite memories that you remember? Because there was one particular night, which is there's picture evidence of it, of us wearing some sort of black sunglasses that I think my friend Emily gave us. We just ended up pretending to be Neo and Morpheus from The Matrix for about half the night. That was the exact night I was going to point out. We looked at these photos. They're horrific. And I'm in some, like, I don't know what, I think I'm I'm in some polo shirt or something. And I've got these child-sized Spider-Man glasses on. And we thought we were like, I mean, there's a photo. And it thought we were like, yeah, as you say, in the making. That was a funny night. <laughs> that was great. Did you coin the phrase, the Oshies effect, with a Snapchat post you did on a Thursday morning, I remember? Because I think there was one which you put, currently RIP, hashtag the Oshies effect. For the listeners who don't know, the Oshies effect seemed to be become a phenomenon because of the £2.50 double vodka kicks, which would be on offer in the Oceana cheese room dance floor, which basically destroyed any semblance of a immune system we had. Yeah, it was. I didn't come up with that one. I used to go, Oceana has us now. Those two pound fifty like double vodka kicks, as you say, and then there was you could get a buy one get one free on Long Island iced teas as well, which was about seven pounds, which was a bargain because the amount of alcohol you got in there. Or you would do a triple, which was a triple VK, into a pint glass. That was bad for my liver that, <laughs> those days because it was so cheap. And everyone was there because you saw everyone there because all the social nights out were on the Wednesday. And we all went to Oceana, which is now called Prism. Yeah, those were big nights. I, I remember in Marty, as I mentioned before, he would come round on a Thursday because we both had that off. I think that was in final year. And we would just go to co-op order pizzas and like so many ridiculous amount of snacks and just watch Disney movies or something like that and Snapchat oh she's as us now 
you've come out with my mates quite a few times and they're all such big fans of yours. We all use Now We Build that you introduced. But there's also one other phrase that you introduced that was coined by a former Liverpool player. Can you just elaborate on that one a bit for the listeners? That's pretty much it. Lucas Laver, honestly, there's a YouTube clip. It's like six seconds long. He just pokes his head around the corner and I don't know what nationality he is, but uh, he's obviously got his accent. And, he, and instead of saying, like, unlucky, he goes, unlucky! And now that's just, uh, just the phrase that I use as well now. My whole family know it as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I want to go back to that Dimensions Festival in Croatia a few years ago now. Well, crikey, definitely like 2016, I think, or 2017. Can you tell the listeners about the story of, of how we got to the festival itself? Because there was such a touch after we thought we'd be getting there in the dark with no idea where our campsite was. We ended up getting just about with light to spare. Yeah, exactly. So we got we got a flight. So it was in, oh, what was the place? Pula. And so we flew into an airport. Obviously, Pula didn't have... Oh, Pula did have an airport, but it was much more expensive, obviously, because of the festival being on. So they bumped the prices. So we thought, oh, we'll go to a cheaper one. or We're not very well off. And then we'll somehow travel to Pula. We managed on like the night before to book a bus because we didn't realise we'd had to do that. Managed to book a bus from the airport to a near a town that was nearer. So we're like, yes, we're nearer. And we got off the bus and we were like looking for just a little cap to get a drink or something. And, you know, because we've been traveling for a while. And we got off and we, we started chatting with this guy. I can't remember his name. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm going there as well. So we managed to, I mean, the first cafe we went in, there was a taxi driver there. And he was like, yeah, I'll do it for this much. And uh, yeah, it was an absolute touch because honestly, we had no idea where we were going. We thought it was quite a good value considering how far it was like best part of an hour to get there in a taxi. And he like pulled over and bought beers and stuff, didn't he, as well? So we could have some beers in the uh, the taxi. And we arrived at the campsite and it was just setting. But if we hadn't got that taxi and this random other guy <laughs> that we just met off the coach, it would have been a lot more expensive or we wouldn't have got there in time. So yeah, that was good. There's a lot of stuff on that holiday we can't disclose on this pod, but I think I definitely remember eating a lot of biscuits and fruit pastels for breakfast. What were your memories of the festival? And there's one particular story that big friend of the pod, Tim Fletcher, was involved in when we were in the middle of the moat stage and you had your old mobile phone out, if that makes you remember that story. Yeah, I do remember that story. Uh, honestly, when I think back, I'm like, why did I do this? I just had my phone out and it was like in the middle of this massive, heavy set. I assume it's drum and bass or trance or something like that. And I was just there. And I was deliberately like uh, on my phone or something. And Tim was next to me. And he came over and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just calling the police. And he was like, oh, why? And I put the phone up to my ear. And I went, oh, it's just been a murder on the dance floor. I put my phone away and started jamming away. I was like, why did I? That was, that's probably one of the, like, the funniest moments of my life. Because Tim was in hysterics. And, and I was dying as well. I, I don't know where I pulled that joke out from. But <laughs> that was a classic. Also, another good time was the the boat party. That was great because we managed to get. <laughs> it was like the only time it was sunny, wasn't it? And we had a great DJ on there. And then it started raining like about half an hour before the end, so we had to all go downstairs. And we were like right by the DJ, so that was another highlight. But um, yeah, that was a great holiday. I still think about it now. It's great. <laughs> We have come to the final topic of conversation, Aaron, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, we are currently in tier three, both of us, not second lockdown, but might as well be, to be honest. How would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Currently, yeah, I'd say it's pretty good. I had a bit of a wobble midway through the first lockdown. I live alone. And at that time, before then, it hadn't really sunk in like the lockdown because I was meant to go traveling. I meet some mates who were out traveling and go to Thailand and Cambodia for a few weeks. That got cancelled. They had to fly home quickly and they didn't want to go back to their parents because they were one of the shielded groups. So I suggested they come stay at mine for two weeks. and That was great. But after they'd gone and it was just me on my own every day sitting at my like dining table on the computer and then moving from the dining table to the sofa or something and not doing anything else. I just felt so unproductive and I did start to have like poor mental health and I toyed with like potentially even moving back in with my parents just so I could see people. But I managed to get some university work done and I just felt a lot better because I'd actually done something in the lockdown. And then over the summer, I was okay because I think the weather really helps and you could go out and you can go for walks or those sorts of things. 
And this second lockdown's been okay, partly because I've actually now created an, an, an office in my, at my place, which really helps separate work from the personal life. And I, I think we mentioned before the pod, it's like, it's, it's somewhere for me to go. And it's not the same place. It's, I'm not in one room all day. Recently, I've been going back into the office. There's only, there's only a few of us in there. And that's been really good. It just makes such a big impact on me being a person who lives alone just seeing people and just having those little chats has such a such a massive effect on your mental health which you might not realize but it does i personally think I'm, i can be i'm a sociable guy but i'm very low maintenance i could just not talk to anyone but it improved my mood so much more just going into the office and seeing the three people there three four people there and just chatting obviously we're moaning about a lot of things in the current climate but it was just good to see some people there so i'd say my mental health is pretty good it dipped during the first lockdown but obviously now we're just geared up for going to christmas so i'm not doing anything to jeopardize going round to my parents but i think it's the lockdown's a bit easier if you've got something to look forward to you've already mentioned the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health which was with your parents and regarding your ears so what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't big ones these are well-known coping strategies or you know things to improve your mental health obviously talking to friends family just about issues can really help i found that exercise really helps I might feel rubbish in the morning and then I go to the gym and honestly not only does my like physically I feel better but mentally I'm ready for the day I'm much more productive those sorts of things in terms of things that haven't helped you know just spending like oh I'm really frustrated or I'm really down and for some people spending time alone and getting your thoughts together can really help but for me that doesn't really work I want to be doing something so some things that really help just ticking off little things and saying that's completed I've done that you know cleaning making your bed some days you just feel so down you're like oh I can't be bothered but just making your bed tidying your room up a bit brushing your teeth having a shower and you can be like a completely different person so those are the things if you don't have specific strategies think small and work your way up and when it comes to your triggers Aaron what ones have you found that do trigger you or have you not figured all of them out yet No, I don't think I've figured them all out yet. It varies on different days. I can be much more irritable on certain days. Don't know why that can be. It could be the weather or what I've eaten or, you know, something's annoyed me earlier in the day. (laughs) One One of the things that gets me really angry, I do get a bit of road rage on specific things. People at roundabouts who don't use their indicators. That just seriously annoys me and gets me really ticked off. Yeah, I'm not really an angry person or a necessarily down or depressed person. I think these are things that you learn as you, you're constantly learning about yourself. It doesn't stop at 18 or 25 or 40 or or onwards. You're still developing your mental health. You're still developing coping strategies. And it's all fluid. As I've mentioned before, one of the ways is you talk to friends and family, but they might not always be your support group and that can always change. It could be, you know, it could be a dog. You could take your dog out for a walk and that could really improve your mood and friends and family fall in and out of your life. So I wouldn't say I know them all. And these are things that you just carry on learning about yourself. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Aaron, and we've discussed a little bit of it already in the rugby chat. But for you, what does it mean to you How do we tackle it? Hopefully, in a few more years and a few more pods, it will be in a very, very small minority. Toxic masculinity is that sort of, in my idea, it's the the sort of people who go, oh, God, feminism. Like, what is that? I can't believe. And which is basically just looking for equality. So people who misrepresent what feminism is can be quite often toxic masculinity. It's those who make derogatory comments to women you know, all those sort of things that you think about are really antiquated, you know, like catcalling a woman. This, or you go more darker, you know, people who take photos of women or try and do upskirting. Those who see women as either below them or as a sexual object or as a tool for them to do something. They really think that they're beneath them, maybe less intelligent, not capable of things that they are. I think it is, it's obviously maybe it's been shone a light more on it recently with all the, you know, Me Too movement and gender equality around pay. 
But I think it's still prevalent in society. There are still people who think that men are just better than women. And that's probably obviously the extreme version. And there are some unconscious bias around those things in terms of, oh, I'm not going to hire a woman because she might get pregnant and then need maternity pay for six months. So I won't have a worker and it costs me money. Those sorts of things, which I think need to be stamped out. And the more we talk about it, the more likely we are going to eradicate it out of our society. I also talk a lot on this pod, Aaron, about positive masculinity. And hopefully in a few more years, masculinity will just be positive masculinity and it won't be as derided as perhaps it is in some circles at the moment. What are some of the qualities you think a man should have to exude to be described as positively masculine? Is it, for example, self-confidence, self-awareness, empathy for others? What can you tell me here? First of all, we talk about toxic masculinity as it only affects women, but actually it affects men just as equally in terms of, you know, the patriarchy and these sort of social or gender norms, which affect men constantly. We're not meant to talk about our feelings. We don't really get taught that. I think there is a shift now, much more of a shift, that men are much more open to talking about their feelings. But men shouldn't be crying was the old terminology, which obviously massively affects men's mental health and is one of the reasons why men are more likely to commit suicide than women, even though women self-harm more. So that's we can't just talk about toxic masculinity in terms of, oh, it only affects women. It does also affect men, and that's why we've got to challenge it. In terms of a positive masculinity... That's something that we've got to discuss and develop. I think it it obviously depends on each person. I know we like to try and group things, but yeah, the individual does matter. Obviously, I think empathy is crucial. Those sorts of ideals and behaviours that we might take for granted or we, we sort of view as we're taught from a young age of British, you know, about tolerance and equality. But yeah, empathy is such a key one. Open to discuss feelings, you know supportive it's hard to nail down but there are positive things about masculinity but i think it does depend on the individual and just finally mate what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to this one's really key as i've mentioned in the last question we are sort of shifting towards that people are much more open about well men especially i mean They're much more open to talking about their feelings, feeling down and depressed. And also, I think men are much more accepting to hear those thoughts and not just immediately throwing them away or saying, oh, God, you're weak, man up, those sorts of terms. In terms of building it for the generations to come, like a lot of things, it starts with starting young, reinforcing those messages in school and as well as in the home, which I think are going to be, they're obviously promoted more in schools now with statutory health education, which has come into effect in September, which people might not know about, but that obviously covers emotional and physical health and about discussing what your feelings mean, who to go to for support, those sorts of things. So I think we're on the right path. Is there anything we can do to make it a faster process? That's difficult to say, but in terms of the next generation, I think they're going to be set up quite well to handle the pressures of life as they move from a young person to adolescence to adulthood. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Mind on the Game. I want to say a big thanks to my mate and all-round legend, Aaron, for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or please write us a review give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and support our Patreon. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mind on the Game. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Mind on the Game.